If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Psalms 91 this morning. We completed last week uh, our series walking through the book of Colossians, and now we're preparing uh, just uh, thinking about the goodness and the thanksgiving of God in times of trouble, and we'll begin our, our transition into our Advent or our Christmas uh, series coming up. So if you would, in Psalm 91, just follow along with me as I read just the first four verses that we will walk through the entirety of the chapter. For this is God's word for his people this morning. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Pray with me. Father, this is your word for us today. May we find comfort and refuge in it. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Well, they say that this coming week, Americans will eat approximately 700 million pounds of turkey. They will go to town, they will enjoy themselves, and Thanksgiving is a tradition that we look forward to, to be with family, to remember the good things that God has done, and to thank God in particular for his goodness and kindness in our lives. And it's one thing to be thankful for family as we gather around that table, but perhaps most importantly, is it not mostly thankful and more importantly to be thankful for the, the goodness and the kindness of our God. Now, I know that as I look out into this room and as we approach other services and my counseling schedules over the past six months, I know that many of you have had trouble that has come your way. You've experienced suffering and, and hardship. You've had pain and heartache in your life over the past year even so. And yet, found in God's word in Psalm 91 are some truths to remind us of in the midst of those troubles and in the midst of those pain that I think we would do well to remember this morning. Beginning in verse 1, he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Notice the words that the psalmist uses in the beginning of the psalm, words like shelter and shadow. They imply that you and I, and for the psalmist, that, that we are near to God, or rather that God is near to us. It implies a, a proximity. It implies this closeness, this Emmanuel, God with us, that, that God is with us in the midst of, of all of our sorrow and heartache, all in the midst of all of the goodness and, and the happiness. But, but these words like, like shadow, perhaps they don't appeal to us on cold mornings like today, but for those of us who are true Texans, we know what it's like to endure a summer in the Texas heat. And we know what it's like to walk out of the sun and, and to walk and enter into the shadow. We understand the refuge that comes alongside when we walk into the shadow. I think in particular of some of my, my bald-headed or hairless friends that are here today. You perhaps understand that better than anyone. It's this picture that the psalmist uses to abide in the shadow to say that my Lord, my God is my refuge and that he is my fortress. It's this picture that exists of a frightened child standing behind their parents, feeling safe that whatever is coming, that, that mom and dad are present. 
Yet in the midst of this, the psalmist doesn't just say uh, the shadow, doesn't just say the shelter, but he goes on in verse 2 and, and notice the possessive personal pronouns that he uses. He says, God is my refuge. God is my fortress. You ever think for a moment about how, how audacious it perhaps might be to proclaim that God is your God, my God. To this day, I have never proclaimed that I personally possess anyone. I've made statements that my wife is my wife and I am her husband and these are my children and, and this is my church. But yet in this moment, what the psalmist is saying, this is my God, my refuge, my fortress. He is the one in whom I will trust. He goes on in verse three and he says, for he will deliver you. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge for his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. God will put us under his wings like a mother hen who covers her young. A mother hen that covers her young. And grabs those little children, grabs those little babes and, and brings them in, under and in the midst of refuge. And in this moment, it's one of the only analogies that we have in the scripture that describe God with a feminine metaphor, if you will. To connote a, an idea that, that God is, there is a tenderness to him. There is a compassion that exists within God that is best reflected in this moment in the psalmist's minds that he is like that mother hen who takes that small one under the wings, the tenderness that is reflected there in the text. God made each of us different, but there is this refuge and there is this safety that exists within there. Last Christmas, my mom, my grandma, our lolly is what we call her, she bought most of our kids this gift that she had seen advertised on television that she came across in a department store, and it's, it's called a Snuggie. Now, I don't know if you know what a, what a Snuggie actually is. I didn't know what a, what a Snuggie was and, until my kids pulled it out of the package. And what a Snuggie basically is, it's a blanket with a hole in it that has a hoodie on the back. And you take that blanket and you put it around you almost like a poncho. And so on any given day, you'll see my daughters in particular walking around with, with Snuggies on and, and you, you look at them and you think you just look ridiculous as they go about doing all the things in the house and, and doing their chores. Yet one of the things my middle child always says, Hadley, is dad, it, it feels so warm and it feels so good. It feels so secure. In the midst of that, God goes on in verse five and he he says, therefore, because of all these things, you will not fear the terror of the night. You won't fear the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. What is it like? For just a moment, if we experienced a, a disease that sweeps through the entirety of our neighborhood, most certainly recently we have seen a disease that has swept through the entirety of the world. Yet in this moment, to bring it home more specifically, if it sweeps through our neighborhood and, and we see thousands of people on our right and on our left that, that perish before us, 
The psalmist says this, that though we may endure pestilence, that we may see the thousands fall to the right and to the left. The psalmist says that when they study your life at the end of the day, they will find out your secret has always been and will be the shadow of the God that you stood underneath. That the reason why you are ultimately where you are is because of the refuge that you find in our God, of the shadow that you find in our God. Why? Because verse 9 goes on and he says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge. Therefore, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. How interesting is it that in this moment, what the psalmist does is reminds us that in God's sovereignty and in his protection, he, he commands the angels to look over to those who, who take refuge in him, to look over to those who, who would find solace and solitude in the midst of being in his presence. Verse 12, he goes on and he says, and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. I, I thought as a dad, how applicable that will be with a, with a six and a seven year old who loves to, to play with Legos that, that lest I strike my foot against the Lego at night, God has commanded his angels <laughs> to protect me, to provide for me, to, to be present for me. Therefore you will tread, verse 13, on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Why? Because he holds fast to me in love. Therefore I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. In that verse 14, that's not the typical Hebrew word for love. But rather in this moment, the psalmist is using a different word that, that means zeal, it means passion, it means deep longing that exists within the heart, the heart of our God and the heart of those who find refuge in him. And so it could read as because he holds fast to me with a deep longing and a deep care and a deep passion and a, and a deep zeal. Therefore, because of all of those things, I will deliver him and I will protect him because he knows my name. He holds me fast because he is my refuge. Therefore, verse 15, and when he calls to me, I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and I will honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. And one of the things that's so striking about Psalm 91 is it causes us to reflect on the, the goodness and the character and the nature of God. And it seems to intimate that if we do all of these things and find refuge in him, that then couldn't one rightly interpret or apply this text saying that, that no, no, nothing wrong in your life will ever happen. No sickness or disease, no turmoil or no conflict. If, if you would just rightly trust in God in the right way, we know from the story of Job that that is not true. That as Job experienced affliction and trials and heartache, his, his friends that came alongside him said, Job, you just need to be more faithful. Job, you just need to be more steadfast. Job, you just need to trust more. You need to find God to be a better and a, and a greater refuge. And, and we know that at the end, God rebukes those men. And God reminds them, blessed is the Lord, for he gives and he takes away. If you trust God, nothing bad will happen to your life and it will go smoothly. Is the wrong application to Psalm 91. 
Well, therefore, how do we understand Psalm 91 in, in light of our lives? I think we use this principle that comes to interpretation that if we and when we interpret Scripture, we always use Scripture first and foremost to interpret the other Scripture. So to understand what, what God is saying, because everyone here in this room would, could say rightly so, but yet I think I've trusted rightly, yet affliction has come my way. I think I, I, I had faith, but, but yet it didn't go my way. There was still conflict and, and hardship and heartache, and, and I don't know, am I, am I not trusting perfectly? I want to remind us of a couple of truths. Number one, in asking the question, how does Psalm 91 inform our understanding of how we live our lives in relationship to God today. Number one is this, God uses our pain and he uses our suffering for us to grow in our knowledge of him. We see this in verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. He makes that statement specifically. He says, I will be with them in times of trouble it never says you will have no trouble. Godly people who do, what, do what's right, faithful people who do what's right still experience trouble in their life. They still experience hardship, but sometimes when we get hurt, Sometimes when we experience pain and we come to know God better in the midst of that hurt and in the midst of that pain, and that is simply better than us avoiding the pain and avoiding the hurt altogether. Because it is in the midst of the difficulty that we experience that we, we grow in our relationship with God. And, and he says, I will be with you in the midst of your trouble, not that you won't have any trouble. In verse 16, where he says, with long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. He, he's not talking about adding uh, years to your life that are, that are pain-free and free of all hardship. But rather what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 91 is he's saying that in the midst of that hardship, it will not lead you to places and postures and seasons of great despair. Because the reminder is that in the midst of all of those difficulties, the thanksgiving that comes is in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of when our lives don't go the way that we want them to go. God says, yet I will be with you in the midst of all of that. I will be with you in the midst of that trouble. God uses our pain and our suffering to grow us in our knowledge of him. And secondly, God promises to use all things for good in our lives. He promises to use all things for good in our lives. We know this from Romans 8, 28, where Paul says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those that are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love him and those that are called according to his purpose work together in that sense of Romans 8. It does not mean that bad things are really good things in disguise. But rather it means something more that God takes genuinely bad things, genuinely difficult circumstances, and he brings his power to bear so that we are better off for having had those things happen. We, we are better people. We are better followers of Christ. We are better fathers and mothers. We are better sons and daughters. We are better coworkers and bosses and leaders and servants because of the midst of all of those things that God uses to shape our character, to shape who we are. He uses the adversity in the midst of that. He promises that he will use those things to work together for our good. 
We see this all throughout scripture as well. All throughout the book of Acts, every time Satan attacks the church, the the church grows. Every time he goes about his ways trying to deceive and to steal and to kill and destroy, the propagation of the gospel goes forth in greater ways and, and even with greater power on the cross. Where Christ was crucified for, for your sins and mine, where, where people did their absolute worst, God turned that darkest moment in human history and he turned it into our brightest moment because it brought our salvation today that we get to experience. And friend, rest assured, I can say without a doubt that whatever your pain is, you can rest assured that God will do the same with us. One writer put it this way, he said, God most certainly grows us in the soils of affliction rather in the gardens of ease. He grows us in the soils of affliction. You've ever walked into a garden, the Arboretum or the Botanical Gardens, and you, you see in the springtime in particular all, all the beauty that exists there in that moment, but what you don't see behind the scenes are, are all the workers who are that back there, and they're, they're pouring out fertilizer, and they're pulling weeds, and, and they're pruning the plants. They're, they're putting in all the work to make it to be something that you and I can go and see, that you can delight in in the midst of it, but all of that hard work. All of that beauty that you see on display was because of the hard work that was behind it. God will grow us in the midst of that affliction, not in places where it's always easy. Thirdly, I would say that in understand, to understand Psalm 91, we must remember the idea that when God promises that in the midst of our pain, he brings us under his wing. That in the midst of it, it is he that is bringing us in as we trust him. And we, as Christians, we recognize this truth that, that this life that you're living right now in the midst of it, whether it is good and great or whether it is bad and whether it is hard, this life is just the prelude. It's just the beginning. It's, it's the, the thing that sort of that gets you ready as we experience our soloists that, that play before us in the worship service and in those few minutes prior to the service that is meant to get our hearts ready so that we would engage and we would worship. Friends, your life is just a prelude for the eternal one that is to come. John tells us in Revelation 21 that this life is going to look much different than it looks here now. For he says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And there shall be no more mourning and no more crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. Friends, we are, as the psalmist reminds us, we are headed for a place where the worst pain we will go through will seem like just birth pains swallowed up in the midst of the new joy that comes in life. That the things that we experience here, no matter how long the season or how difficult it may be, it will just be like birth pains before that child enters into that world and the, and the joy that you see on their face as God has brought them before. This is what the psalmist is doing in that moment. He is ultimately reminding us this truth that all of Psalm 91 is ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. The promise of God to protect us under his wings is like some mother shows us how committed he is to us as his people. On the cross, you can see the parallels. He literally covered us. 
He most certainly shielded us so that the harmful elements of this life, as they come, they would not destroy us, but rather he would allow it to destroy him temporarily in that moment. Christ is the promise of what is to come. He is the promise of the the resurrection in which every phrase of Psalm 91 will will literally and most certainly be true. And, And that promise is supposed to redefine how we think and perceive everything. That our God is is good and merciful and kind. And we know this to be true because he put to death on the cross his son. And so the ultimate way that we display our our, uh, understanding and our obedience, the ultimate way that that we seek to mirror Psalm 91 is we we seek to trust in in the goodness of God and who Jesus is and who he proclaimed to be. So that when we take refuge in in a shadow, when we take refuge in the wings, when we run to those things, we we understand that he is the one that will hold fast to me in love. He is the one that wants to see me flourish, made in his image, longing to see me honor him with my life and walk in faithfulness. Yet, this week as I finished that, I wasn't necessarily satisfied And still not being able to answer the question that every time we come to Psalm 91 and we see this, yet we we still see that we we suffer. We still see that we want all those things to be true. And we long for the day of heaven where all of these things will be perfectly fulfilled. So when do we suffer? How should we view it? Just three quick things that I want you to remind you of that, that most of you already know. Number one is this. Suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. The reason we suffer is the curse of death on our sin. When we truly deserve in this life is not anything good or kind. What we deserve is death. And the fact that in this world there is still good, the fact that that in this world there is still kindness and compassion, all of these things, that God would give us the space to repent God would give us the space to follow. God would give us the space to to learn to understand, to to learn to be transformed into his image, to, to put on the fruit of the spirit in our life. Suffering is the result of the curse of death. And I would say one thing that's striking that I read this week by one theologian. He says, the Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil so much as it marvels at the amazing grace that comes from God. Too often we read stuff like Psalm 91, I'm guilty of this, and go, yeah, but God, why is there still suffering? When the truth is of God's word is that it spends more time not trying to answer the problem of evil, not trying to answer the problem of suffering, but it spends more time meditating and marveling at the wondrous mystery and work of God's amazing grace. That is the focus. That is the focus of his word and that is the focus of his people. Secondly, When do we suffer and how should we view it? God in his love and his mercy, he has reversed the curse by suffering in it in our place. We understand this reality that point one leads to point two, that suffering is the result of the curse of death. Yet God in his love, God in his mercy, he has reversed that curse by suffering in our place. Putting his son to death on your behalf and on my behalf. The only innocent person that has ever truly existed in history was Jesus. And he lived entirely free from rebellion. And he should have been the one person that was exempt from all of this. Yet he was the one person that that willingly went and offered his life up as a ransom for you and for me. 
Thirdly and finally for Christians, God now uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and our good. God knows, friend, this morning your, your hardship. He knows the hardship that has befallen you this past year. He knows the hardship that is to come. Yet even in all of those moments, he, he plans on using it for his redemptive purposes. All for his glory, that his holiness and perfection will be put on display before the world. And all for your good to make you into someone that you would not otherwise become had you not endured that, had you not gone through that. One of my favorite books of all time is called The Shadow of the Almighty. And it's the journals of Jim Elliott, who many of you are familiar with, one of the young five missionaries slain on the beaches of Ecuador in the 1950s. It was published by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, many years later. And it's named specifically after Psalm 91. When I was a freshman in college, uh, I was given uh, another book that Elizabeth Elliott wrote that introduced me to that story through Gates of Splendor. But yet in the title, The Shadow of the Almighty, the title is ironic when you, when you think about it in this way, that, that Jim being a, a young missionary, a young promising preacher was literally pierced through his heart by a spear. And he was murdered and he was killed, which is something that Psalm 91 says won't happen if you take refuge in him and, and you trust him, him. Yet she called her book The Shadow of the Almighty because she was utterly convinced that the refuge of the people of God is not a refuge from suffering and death, but a refuge through it. And a refuge into from final ultimate defeat of death. That, that their reward and our reward is something greater than this life can offer. She quotes Eliot in the book and says, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. I love that. I am immortal until my work on this earth is done. The same is true of you just as it was true of Jim Eliot. Though your life may not end at the tip of a spear as it passes through your heart, your, your work yet, it still remains the same. To see those that are far from God, to come to know him, to live on mission with God and, and to thank God for who he is and his kindness and his goodness and to call upon the name of Jesus to save you from your sins and to redeem you and to reconcile you to our heavenly father. Years later, one of the men who died that's a part of this story, Steve Saint, was speaking at a conference and his dad was murdered alongside Jim. And in Steve's talk, he made this statement that I'll conclu conclude with this. He says, why is it that we insist that every chapter to be good when only God promises that the last chapter he will make, all the other chapters make sense? That in the very last chapter of our life, when we go before our heavenly father, it's only then at that moment, that bookend towards the very end that everything else in our life is going to make sense. So what do we do between now and then? Well, I think we go back to Psalm 91. And I think we seek to be a people who dwells in the shelter of the most high, who abides in the shadow of the almighty, who says to the Lord, you are my refuge, you are my fortress, you are my God in whom I trust. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it teaches and instructs, that it is, as the writer of Hebrews says, it is a double-edged sword and that it pierces both bone and marrow. And so Father, I, I ask now as we come before your table, that we would come before it in a way that honors you and that brings glory to your name and, and who you are. 
And Father, we love you deeply as your people. We say thank you for all the good gifts you've given us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.